We'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. We're in a new chapter this week in the book of Genesis, continuing our study of the beginning of things, all things. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have begotten, <clears throat> I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and they were in the field, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we see here in your word that there are things that are lofty and difficult for us to understand. We can recognize in just reading this that there are details that are going past us. So I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit's help, as we look to this text this morning, that you would reveal the gospel to us that you would glorify Christ in your word for us, that we may have better understanding of what you mean for us to, to see and read here in Genesis 4. Would give us ears to understand, not ears like Cain. This is in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there are a handful of people who, when they put puzzles together, they do it without looking at the box top. I don't know any of them. 
No one in my family does it that way, and I know it's possible, and you could do that. If you start with the edges, right? If you're starting with the edge pieces, you know that those go together, and then you can kind of match the colors. But you're going to make a lot of mistakes, aren't you? As you, as you work your, your way through, you'll think one color is supposed to go over here, and it's not. It's actually going on the, the other side of the puzzle. So, so a lot of trial and error will get you a completed puzzle. But using the box top that God gave you <laughs> is much easier, isn't it? You, you get to see the completed picture while you put it all together. Well, reading the Bible is similar. God has given us an entire Bible to look at and read and understand, so so we should read it that way. We can look at an individual verse or or individual stories and be able to make some observations, just like you could tell of a puzzle piece that it goes on the edge, or it's blue, or it's got, you know, it's flat on the side, the the, the hole is fatter, and the, the, the arm thing is... It's longer and skinnier. But really understanding these stories and understanding how to put a puzzle together is a lot easier And you look at the big picture. The story of Cain and Abel is that way. If you read this story all on its lonesome, like if you would just sit down and just take Genesis 4 straight out of the Bible, you could draw some observations. Cain was a troubled man. We could all see that. We can we agree to that. He has an anger problem. Yes. He did not fear God. We can see that in the text. He didn't listen to God when he should have. Also obvious in the text. But then some of the details of the story might lead you astray. They might lead you to think this piece goes on this side of the puzzle when it doesn't. For instance, if you read this story with any level of interest, you're going to start asking questions like, Why was Cain's offering rejected by God? Why is Abel's offering accepted? And if you're only looking at Genesis 4, and you don't look at the box top, you have to settle for the differences in the substance of the offerings. So Cain offered produce, or grain, or something like that from the ground, from his garden. Abel offered the firstborn of his flock, as well as the fat portions. So, what are your choices? Well, either God chose Abel's offering arbitrarily, or he likes meat more than he likes produce. You could create a cult with information like that, couldn't you? And what's with this brother's keeper? And and the blood speaking from the ground, talking blood strange on its own, isn't it? And why did God curse Cain and drive him out? Why didn't he just kill Cain for what he did? Those are all important Bible themes that are easier to see in in, in the text, easier to understand here in the text of Genesis 4 if you look at the big Bible picture, the box top. When we read a text like this, all by itself, outside of its immediate context, of chapters 1 through 6, outside of the context of Genesis as a whole, outside of the Old Testament, outside of the Bible as a whole, we miss the message of the story. We miss how each piece fits together into the pictures that make up the larger picture. So what I want us to do this morning is to see how this story of Cain and Abel fits into that larger story of redemption. And through that, I think... 
I hope that we will better see what the Spirit who wrote this with Moses, the Spirit wants us to understand from this text. There are three scenes on the box top. You know, all puzzles have different pictures all embedded into them. There's three on the box top that we're going to see. There's lots of pictures on the Bible's box top, but there's three that we're going to see here. Faith, the seed, and blood. So the faith of Abel, the seed of the serpent, and the blood that talks. Those are the three pictures on our puzzle that we'll be examining. The first major Bible theme here that echoes Cain and Abel is the theme of faith. All throughout Scripture, it is those who have faith in God's promises that are justified before God, accepted before God. Understanding, as we have sung this morning so many times, understanding that we are saved by faith is key to understanding how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. Already last week, as we were looking at the end of Genesis 3, we saw that Adam had faith when he renamed his wife Eve in accordance with God's promise. God renewed his relationship with Adam and Eve. We see this week that just the same, Eve also has faith. Look at verse 1 of our text, Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, look what she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. See what she's saying? She, she recognizes that the only reason that God has given her this gift of a child is because it, it was his gift. She didn't do this on her own. That takes us back to uh, Genesis 3.16, if you'll remember from a few weeks ago. Eve is trusting the Lord. She names her first son Cain, which is similar to the, to the word for from the Lord. She knows that it is God who has blessed her with a son. The Lord provides again another son. His name's Abel. So this, the, the gift, the blessings of these sons are welcomed by Eve. She's thankful for them. She knows that they are a gift from God. It shows her faith, doesn't it? She's trusting in God's promise that there would be a seed, an offspring that would come from her. There's also a continuation of God's blessing here with the occupation of the sons. This is what Moses is showing us in verse 2. Abel, keeper of the sheep. Cain, worker of the ground. To be a keeper of the sheep, a shepherd, is to show dominion over the animals. That should be a Genesis 1, verse 28 echo for you. To work the ground is to subdue the earth. Also, Genesis 1 echo. So just in these first two verses, we see Adam and Eve participating in God's blessing of being fruitful and multiplying So they have sons, and their sons are participating in God's blessing by having dominion over the beasts and subduing the earth. So far, this seems like good news. God has responded to Adam and Eve's sin, the fall, by disciplining them, and his discipline has had the effect of restoring their faith in him. So now their family is continuing in the blessing. Praise God. May we as well. May we have increased faith when God disciplines us. Well, the setting of the story of Cain and Abel begins at the altar, and it concerns offerings. That tells us one more thing, though. Just, just cue this in. Adam's family is still in relationship with the Lord. They worship him. 
We might overlook that if we hurry past it in the text. Look, they're worshiping God, worshiping Yahweh. Look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Now, there's no indication in the text that God has commanded that sacrifices be given. There's not a verse. Rather, these offerings, they show us something. They show that somehow Adam or, or the Lord... Remember, the Lord is speaking to them here. One of them, somebody, has taught the boys that all that they have comes from the Lord. Though they are outside the dwelling place of God, they're still nearby, and the the Lord is still king over them. He's still present with them. He is their sovereign provider. And just as Eve confesses that the Lord has provided her sons, this, this act of returning offerings back to God is at least a hint. And that's as far as I'll take it. It's at least a hint that at least one of the boys knows that what he has comes from God. One of them is making an offering to God as a way of worshiping the Lord and honoring him as king. And it's here at the altar where things start to go sideways. Abel's offering is accepted by God. Cain's is rejected. And my question, like your question, is, well, why? Well, if you step back and look at the whole Bible and ask the question, are there other offerings in Scripture that are rejected by God? Then you'll start to notice a pattern as you look for these offerings rejected by God. I'm going to give you just a few examples, see if you notice a pattern. One of the first examples uh, that comes to my mind is, is King Saul. One of the first kings of, uh, of Israel, he disobeys the word of the Lord. He doesn't wait for the prophet Samuel, and he makes a hasty offering to God in disobedience to God, and he does it kind of as a show, and he loses his kingship for it. God rejects his offering. Well, in the book of Amos, Israel is taking advantage of the poor, and they're not living in full-hearted obedience to God, yet they're still making sacrifices to God. And so God says to them, look what he says in Amos 5, Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. God is rejecting all of their offerings, grain, meat, song, everything. In Malachi, the people are lying to God, and they're giving him sick and blind animals. Their devotion is clearly in Malachi, to themselves and to the the preservation of their own wealth. They're they're, they're kind of sacrificing as a half-hearted lip service to God. So God says to them in Malachi 1, Oh, that there were one of you who would shut the doors. Say, just shut the doors to the temple. Get this, this, stop coming in here. That you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. A rejected offering. See it? In Hosea, the people are worshiping false gods. They're building altars, making sacrifices to those false gods. Meanwhile, they're continuing to worship the Lord on the side. Kind of a kosher just in case. 
Hosea 8 says this, As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. He's pushing them away from his presence. Keep going. Isaiah says he hates the feasts and the festivals and the sacrifices of people who are wavering between trusting God and trusting in themselves and in false gods. In the New Testament, again and again, Jesus teaches that the Pharisees are hypocrites in their worship. Why? Well, they fast, they tithe, they pray, they make offerings to God, but, but their acts of worship are, are an end in themselves. They're not acts of faith. They're acts of self-worship. What's the common denominator? All throughout Scripture, all of these Rejected sacrifices, the common denominator is a lack of faith. It's helpful to look back at all of Scripture and then to see the answer really clear for us in the back of the book in Hebrews. The book of Hebrews confirms for us that it is faith that was the difference between Abel's sacrifice and Cain's sacrifice. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. I'll put it in the screen, on the screen for you. By faith... Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith that we died, he still speaks. So here it is. When it comes to worshiping God, that's what these two brothers are attempting to do. When it comes to worshiping God, our heart is what matters to God, isn't it? Are we like Abel? Are we like Abel offering praise to God with hearts of faith and devotion to God because he's God and he's worthy? Or are we like Cain? Treating our worship of God as some sort of exchange, transaction. God, I'll give you this offering. You give me this in return. God, I'll tithe, but you have to fill up my bank account on the backside and get me out of this jam. God, I'll go to church, but you have to heal my wife. God, I'll serve in the church, but only if you take away my guilty conscience. God, I'll obey you, but if I do, you must accept me. You see this transaction mindset? And the problem with that, the problem with that way of thinking is that this betrays a low view of God. It makes God like one of us, equal with other people. Can negotiate with him. So, so when we go to God, we think of it as if, as if we're at a store. I give something, I get something in return. It's the transaction mindset. But God is much bigger, much, much, much bigger, infinitely bigger than that. There's no sense at all of a transactional relationship with the God of the universe. He doesn't owe us anything. And we owe him our very existence. When we use worship, like Cain did, when we use worship as a way of negotiating with God, we're forgetting that he is God, worthy of all praise. We've made him out to be a, a car salesman. Abel, listen to this, because this is where it really boils down. Abel brought his best to God, because to him, God is worthy of praise and thanksgiving and worship. And God accepted Abel's offering, not because 
of the offering itself, not because it was a good offering, but because Abel made the offering in faith. Genesis 4.4, and the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering. He's seeing Abel first. Cain made his offering without faith. So verse 5 says, but for Cain, Cain is spoken first, not the offering. Cain and his offering, he had no regard. When when we understand it this way, here's what we, we know. Cain could have offered the very same thing as Abel. Cain's not a shepherd, but he could have taken a, a bumper crop and traded for, for a top-quality ram from, from Abel's flock, and then he could have sacrificed that ram to God. So the, the, the smell, the appearance, everything would have been exactly the same before God. But that would not have made a difference. His offering would have still been rejected, even if it was the exact same thing, because Cain's offering was made without faith. God saw into Cain's heart just as he would later see into the unbelieving hearts of those Israelites making sacrifices. Just as Jesus saw into the hearts of the Pharisees, just as God sees into your heart, your motivations, your sacrifices, your offerings, your service in the name of God means nothing without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The substance the sacrifice is not the issue. The costliness of the sacrifice is not the issue. The time spent preparing the sacrifice is not the issue. The faithful heart of the worshiper is what God is seeking. God does not need sacrifices. Think about it. He doesn't need your money. All of the earth is His. All of it. He doesn't need your time. All of eternity is His. What God is looking for is worshipers. And God finds that in Abel. Does not find that in Cain. And so he rejects Cain's offering. And Cain's response reveals Cain is not a man of faith. Look what Cain does. Cain was very angry and his face fell. That means he scowled towards God. Some people say, oh, Cain was depressed. Bogus. He scowled. He made it a, a, a face of anger towards God. He's angry with God. He's hearted himself toward God in his word. Cain is angry because he believes, I'm in the right and God is in the wrong. How dare God reject his offering? Doesn't God know how much work it took to gather this crop up? Doesn't God know what this cost Cain? Doesn't God know what Cain could have done with this instead of leaving it on the altar and just wasting it? How dare God treat Cain like this? Who does he think he is? He's anger. Thinking more highly of himself than God. His unbelief, faithlessness, makes room for pride, which leads to anger, which leads to jealousy, which leads to murder. But it all begins with a very, very, very low view of God. Well, faithless Cain quick to become angry, but the Lord, merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, is slow to become angry. He even gives Cain the opportunity to repent of his anger. Look at verse 6. The Lord says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, since crouching at the door, it's desires for you, but you must rule over it. 
that if you do well, will you not be accepted? That, that, that line there shows us there is a potential, isn't there? There's hope kind of in that. A future potential of an accepted Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? God is saying, hey, Cain, Cain's not, all, all is not lost, Cain. Your life is not over because I rejected this one sacrifice. You can repent. You can come before me in faith. You can be at peace with me. You see the offer? In his mercy, God is freely offering reconciliation to Cain. And he even, add to that merciful offer, he, he, he even graciously gives him a warning. Do you see the patience and the love of God here? I want you to repent, Cain. I will accept you if you have faith, if you repent and come to me in faith. And here's a warning. If you continue on the road that you're on, if you continue on that path, destruction. He says, if you will do well and repent and believe, they will be reconciled. If you do not do well, that means if you continue in disbelief, if you continue in your pride and your anger, sin will consume you. God says sin is crouching at the door already. The serpent, if we're remembering from Genesis 3, the serpent is coiled up, ready to strike. The serpent has a desire for Cain. It wants to devour him, to consume him, to make him his own. And God graciously and patiently warns Cain of this impending danger. God's warnings, his patience, they're meant, as Paul says in Romans, they're meant to lead to repentance. Like a father telling his son, son, do not put your hand in the blender. God is telling Cain, do not make another move in that direction. Turn back now or you will be destroyed. Is that hateful of God? It's not, is it? Nor is a father telling his son not to put his hand in the blender. A hateful thing. It's a loving, gracious warning. And it seems clear enough to us when we look at it. That the God of the universe, the only one who knows the future, is telling Cain what is ahead of him. He is the one who sees something in Cain's life that will lead to destruction. And we see God audibly speaking to Cain. Not, not many of us get that, do we? But Cain did, and Cain doesn't listen. So here's our second question. Why not? Why doesn't Cain listen? Well, we talked about our first Bible theme of faith and unbelief, but another scene on the box top is the picture of the seed. In chapter 3 of Genesis, God said he would put enmity between the offspring or the, the seed of the woman and the offspring or the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman will be attacked by the serpent, but ultimately the seed of the woman will crush the serpent. This theme is perhaps one of the most significant themes in Scripture. Look for it when you read the Bible, because it's all over the place. It comes up again and again, all throughout Scripture, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Revelation, by the way, if you're looking for the box top, Revelation is the box top. 
You get everything in, in living color, in like Kodachrome. It's, it's bright, high definition. So in Revelation, you get the picture of a dragon or the serpent waiting near the woman who was about to give birth to the son. Sounds like Genesis 3, doesn't it? That son, the seed of the woman who will rule over all creation. John says that the dragon is waiting to devour the child. That is a picture of Genesis 3.15. Extremely important story in Scripture. All throughout, in Cain and Abel, is the first bit of history that fits into that scene. And this way of understanding Scripture is what helps us to understand why Cain rejected the Lord's instruction and killed his brother. So flip to 1 John chapter 3 with me. We saw this already in John chapter 8. The reason why the Pharisees did not listen to Jesus was why? Because they were of they were of the serpent. 1 John chapter 3 gives us a good picture of this. Now, John, uh, Josh, Pastor Josh, has been teaching through 1 John and, uh, and, and showing us that John is helping the church discern those who are truly in Christ and those who are pretenders. And one way that John describes this difference is to say that those who are truly in Christ are those who are of God. Those who are not truly in Christ, are of the serpent. Look at how John draws this contrast. We'll be in 1 John 3, verse 8. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That phrase, of the devil, means someone belongs to the devil, the serpent. He is, in a sense, the offspring of the serpent. The of shows belonging. John goes on, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. We saw that in John 8, Jesus said that. We saw it in Genesis 3, the temptation, the lying, the manipulation, the rebellion against God. The devil's always been sinning since the beginning. And then John goes on, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, who's the Son of God? He is the child of the promise, the Genesis 3.15 promise. He's come to destroy the works of the devil, or to say it as Moses did, to bruise the head of the serpent. Verse 9, he goes on. No one born of God, notice the language there, born of God, there's the contrast, there are those born of God, there are those born of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's, here it is, seed abides in him. And there's that seed language. Seed language goes back to the seed that would come from the woman and crush the serpent and the works of the serpent. That's God's seed. God's seed, the only begotten son, abides in those who are born of God. And what is remarkable about one who is in Christ is that, John says, he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Which is to say, he's not satisfied by sin. He feels conviction for sin. He repents of sin. He fights against sin. And then, verse 10, by this it is evident who are children of God, who have the seed, and who are the children of the devil of the serpent, offspring of the serpent. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, means they're of the devil, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And this is where he says the contrast between the seed theme gets us back to Cain and Abel. Cain was of the serpent. And that explains a lot. He was of the evil one. Look at verse 11, 1 John 3, 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that is, 
preached Genesis. That we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. He was an offspring of the serpent, of the evil one, and murdered his brother. You see what John's doing? He's aligning Cain with the evil one. He says Cain was of the evil one. That is to say he is of the serpent. He is of the offspring of the serpent. Now physically, this also takes us back to John 8. Physically, Cain was clearly born of his mother and father, right? Genesis 4.1 makes it really undeniable. Adam knew his wife, Eve. They were together. They had a baby. His name was Cain. There's no serpent there. Remember John 8? We are of Abraham. We are of our father Abraham. So there's something spiritual that's happening here. Spiritually, and that's what this is, it's a spiritual battle. Spiritually, the serpent desired Cain and devoured Cain and made Cain his own. Cain did not heed God's warning. He did not listen to God's call for repentance because his loyalty was to the serpent. So that helps us understand what's going on here, doesn't it? Now, now that John has helped us understand that, let's flip back to Genesis. Genesis 4, verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel's brother. Here's the murder. Here's the murder scene. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, this is, this is Moses' way of telling us that this is a premeditated murder. To, to, for Cain to speak to his brother is to say, come on out to the field with me. He's already made plans of killing his brother there in the field. He lures him into the field where nobody is watching, presumably, and it is there that he commits the crime. Nobody will be able to hear Abel crying out. Well, God goes to Cain after this happens, just as he went to Adam in the garden, and God begins the interrogation. Look at Genesis 4, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? Just remember that, and Adam is in the garden. Where are you, Adam? God knew where he was. He, he, God also knows where Abel is, but he's giving him the opportunity to repent again. Where is Abel, your brother? And then Cain responds with the lie, I do not know where he is. Lying. And that lie tells us a couple things about Cain's beliefs. One, he doesn't believe God to truly be God. After all, God sees all things. Everyone that knows God knows that about God. Cain does not believe that about God. Cain believes he can hide things from God. Or else he wouldn't have lied to God. The second thing this shows us is that he truly is of the evil one. Think of our scripture reading, John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, there's the lie. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. So Cain lies to God because he is of the evil one. And then, not because God is, but because Cain is. Cain lies to God because Cain is of the evil one. Then he adds to his guilt with this curious, sarcastic little question. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? He's kind of saying, am I his babysitter? What are you asking me? What do I have to do with Abel? He's his own man. 
But there's something significant that we need to see here. Adam was assigned by God to be the keeper of the garden. You remember that? Genesis chapter 2. Adam was assigned by God to be a keeper. Same word in Hebrew, keeper. It's, it's not written in the text, but it's understood that Cain, the eldest of the brothers, is to be a keeper also of his brother. And that was John's whole point in 1 John 3. From the beginning, we've been taught by God to love our brother. One way to tell a Christian from a pretender is that Christians, those who are truly of God, truly born of the seed, will love their brothers and their sisters in Christ. We will be our brother's keepers, as Cain was supposed to be. To fail to be a brother's keeper, to hate our brother, is to be like Cain, of the evil one. And so what does John say about that? Don't be like Cain. So, to answer Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper, which is a rhetorical question for Cain, but one that we need to consider, the answer is yes. You are your brother's keeper. Well, at this point, God is done negotiating with Cain. He's not going to have any more of it from Cain. He's tired of hearing the lies. He's given him the opportunity for repentance. He's given him a warning of impending danger. And when Cain didn't heed the warning, God again gave him the opportunity to confess his sin, repent of his sin. But Cain is repeatedly unrepentant. He repeatedly lies, and he's repeatedly contemptuous towards God. God the judge now presents the evidence that he has against Cain. Cain, you thought you were getting away with something. Here's the evidence against you. Look at verse 10. Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The evidence against Cain is what? The voice, the testimony, the witness of Abel's blood. God is saying, Cain, I know that you murdered your brother because his blood is yelling it out from the ground. Abel's blood bears witness against Cain. It is the testimony that convicts Cain. And what is the conviction? What is Cain's punishment? Look at what God says in verse 11. And now, because you've done this, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. All right, so who's giving the cursing here? It's God is, but it's the ground that is not going to yield to Cain. But to God, Cain shall be a fugitive, and a wanderer on the earth. Cain's cursed from the ground. Now, now, no human has been cursed yet. Adam and Eve were not cursed. They continued in God's blessing, though the, they were judged, they were disciplined by God, they were sent out of his, uh, of his dwelling place. The serpent was cursed. When God curses Cain in this way from the ground, he's, he's identifying him as of the serpent. Cain has proven himself again and again and again, to be a spiritual offspring of the serpent. Through his, his closed ears towards God, his haughtiness towards God, his disobedience to God, his murder, his lies, his contempt, he's shown his loyalty is not to God but to the serpent. And so, God says, then you shall be with the serpent. He's accursed in accordance with the identity that he's taken on. Cursed and sent away from the presence of God. Now, something bugged me about this. 
Maybe, maybe you too. Why did God not kill Cain? You ever wondered that? You're reading this. Cain is clearly just a totally guilty. There's no remorse. There's no nothing. There's no reason that, that, that he should be walking away. Why is there no capital punishment here? And at first, as I was reading this, I thought, well, this must be, maybe this is God's mercy. Eh, sort of. That's only part of it. Look carefully at what God tells Cain. I had missed this in my first reading. It took reading the New Testament to, to catch it later on. Look what he says. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, what is a fugitive? It's someone who's running from justice, isn't it? Justice has not been fully executed on a person who is running. Running away from their sentence. Cain is considered a fugitive because he will remain guilty the rest of his life. God has not forgiven him. He has not fully exacted his wrath upon him. He will remain fugitive. He will remain under God's wrath. Full punishment fulfills justice. Right? So that, that's why a criminal, when he's released from prison, is said to have done his time. We say he's done his time. He's served his time. He's paid the price. Justice has been fully exacted upon him. Not with Cain. Not so with Cain. Cain is a fugitive because he will remain guilty. He will always be a fugitive. One day, God will avenge Abel's blood. But for now, that's what part of this sentence is, for now, Cain is to carry his guilt with him wherever he goes. That's why Cain is so terrified. Cain knows that. He knows that being a fugitive from justice means that there will be those future children of Adam and Eve looking to avenge their brother's blood. That's what this mark is all about, the mark of Cain. Verses 13 and 14, Cain says to God, this is too much to bear. I cannot accept this. I cannot accept being a hunted man for the rest of my life. He's essentially saying, just kill me now. Put me out of my misery. It would be better for me to die. Verse 15, the Lord says to him, no, 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 no. Nobody's going to kill you, Cain. Vengeance, if someone does kill you, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. This mark on Cain is a, is a mark of protection for Cain, but only kind of. It's not so much that God is protecting Cain, but more so that he is reserving Cain for his own judgment. You guys don't have a whole lot of this here, but when we were in Washington State, you go through the, the state forest or the national forest, and you'd see marks on the trees. What are those for? Forester was going to come take those trees, and you better not touch them because they belong to the state. You better not touch Cain because vengeance belongs to the Lord. Nobody can take God's vengeance away from him. So here's where the blood theme comes in that I told you was coming. This is where we need to look at the box top to get what's going on. Because Cain is not killed by God, because God delays Cain's ultimate judgment, Abel's blood continues 
to cry out for vengeance. This is why in our Hebrews passage, the apostle said of Abel, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. His blood speaks. His blood cried out to God for vengeance. In, in Hebrews 11, it's still crying out to God. All the way from Genesis to the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, the victims, listen, the victims of the serpent are crying out for vengeance. Because the serpent has not received his due justice yet. You might remember this from Matthew 23. We studied Matthew 20, Matthew for, for several years here. Uh, we studied Matthew 23. We got to this, these woes from Jesus against the Pharisees. And what Jesus was telling the Pharisees was essentially, you guys are just like Cain. You are in Cain's camp. You killed Abel. You killed all the prophets all the way down to Zechariah, A to Z. But God's vengeance has not yet come down. But woe to you because God's vengeance is coming on this generation. Matthew 23, 32 to 36. Let me read it for you. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. That means you, you, will, you will feel the, the full measure. God's wrath is coming. You serpents, here it is, you brood of vipers. Brood of vipers, what does that mean? Children of the serpent, offspring of the serpent. You're like Cain. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel, the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Here's what's happening. Your head is spinning right now, I know. God did not kill Cain in Genesis 4. Right? That was my question. Why didn't he? Because of this. He sent him out as a fugitive because God was delaying his judgment. He was storing up wrath against the serpent and against the serpent's offspring. But judgment is coming. That's what Jesus is preaching in Matthew 23. Hell itself has been created and reserved for those who are of the serpent. Now let me just make this crystal clear this morning. If you are not in Christ, you're of the serpent. There's no third way. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What wrath? The wrath that was coming towards Cain and all the offspring of the serpent. There's no third way. So, in Hebrews 12, Get some good news. When the apostle says, you who are in Christ have come to the holy Mount Zion and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here's what that means. For those of you who have received the blood of Christ, if you've been made clean by Christ's blood, you have received forgiveness. You have received acceptance before God. The blood of Abel condemns the faithless. The blood of Abel is what convicts Cain and all unbelievers after him. He cries out from the ground against you if you're not in Christ. But friends, 
The blood of Christ covers you. The blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because the blood of Christ doesn't speak condemnation. The blood of Christ speaks forgiveness. So today, 